This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, Jenny. Hello. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm good, but I'm sad because it's our last time doing this, at least for season I two. I know. It's sad for our hearts. <laughs> it is sad for our hearts. A break could be good, like like a little break, you know, but it is sad. And jump back in? Yeah, maybe. We've had a lot of positive response this season, so yeah. we may have to deconstruct some difficult passages and concepts more in the future. But for today, mm-hmm. we have a doozy. It's the concept of slavery in the Bible. I yes. love that we started out this season with Sodom and Gomorrah and now we're ending with slavery. I feel like that's just good. Like it's a good cap. We tackle the really hard stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm glad we're ending with I the agree. bang. <laughs> yes. Okay. So our Bible game today is, is it the Bible or is it something that a Christian pastor or leader has said in regard to slavery? So okay. our first one is, If you want to get in a fight with the one that started separation of the races, then you come face to face with your God. The difference in color, the difference in our body, our minds, our life, our mission upon the face of this earth is God given. What do you think? I'm going to say that someone said that some, some Christian preacher said that not when he talks about separation of the races, like that's not anywhere I've ever seen in the Bible. So I'm going to say not the Bible. You are correct. That is from Montgomery Pastor Henry Lyon Jr. in 1961. Okay, next one. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and equitable, but also to those who are perverse. That is from the New Testament. Yes. And this particular translation is... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess juicy. <laughs> juicy. I mean, I mean perverse. Yeah. I'm thinking, what? What are we talking about here? And I don't think it meant so. sexually, like perverted. But I yes, don't think it. I don't think it actually is in to. reference to that. But it makes it sound more juicy. It does, and that's the thing. It would have been good to look up that particular word, but I chose that translation because I was like, ooh, that sounds juicy. Juicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, next one. I do not see how God could tell us more plainly that he did command his people to buy slaves from the heathen round about them and from the stranger and of their families sojourning among them. Did God merely permit sin? Did he merely tolerate a dreadful evil? God does not say so anywhere. He gives his people law to buy and hold slaves of the heathen forever on certain conditions and to buy and hold Hebrew slaves in variously modified particulars. (laughs) <laughs> Not, I unintentionally cheated because I read the article that you pulled this quote from. So I know it okay. is from a preacher, not the Bible. But what I like mm-hmm. about this quote is that if you didn't know, like if you weren't well versed in the subject, like it sounds like convincing, like, well, who are we to question God? Like, this is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of like how we yep. talk about men and women and gender roles and just all sorts of things. But yeah. this quote sounds authoritative and I'm glad you pulled yeah, it in. It really does. It's from Reverend Fred A. Ross. He was a Presbyterian minister from Alabama. 
And this is from his 1857 work, Slavery Ordained of God. <laughs> so interesting to me. So mm -hmm. interesting to me. Okay. Yeah. And our last one. The relation of master and slave stands on the same foot with the other relations of life. In itself, it is not inconsistent with the will of God. It is not sinful. Uh, I'm going to say that is not, that is someone else, not the Bible. And again, <laughs> just harkens back to all these things where like, this is just the way it is. God ordained it mm -hmm. this way. So therefore it's good. I'm like, mm, no, I disagree strongly. Mm, yes. That's from James Henley Thornwell. You know, all these people, all these, <laughs> all these pastors that you're quoting, <laughs> they really, they really sound like white supremacists, like really just yeah. stellar, stellar names. Okay. <laughs> They're back. <laughs> This guy is from India. Excuse me. I'm just kidding. He is. Mr. <laughs> okay, well, I, Mr. I Thornwell. Some I made some assumptions. <laughs> well, he's from Columbia, South Carolina. I don't know when when the quote was from, but um, there are so many things that we see all the time taken as, you know, like you said, why question what God says about X, Y, Z. But in that particular mm -hmm. argument, we're not discussing what the Bible actually says or, or what it doesn't. And even when a, a verse is referenced, sometimes it's not expounded upon. And it just, mm -hmm. it is, I think, really interesting to think about growing up, especially perhaps in churches where this is taught, you, it, it would be hard to think a different way about it. So it would. Yeah. If you're just brought up that way and that's what everyone, everyone agrees. This is what the Bible says. It's hard to think about it another way. Yeah. All right. So getting into slavery in the Bible, some people will say, well, the Bible doesn't really speak much on slavery, but if they say that they <laughs> have not read the Bible because <laughs> the Bible has a right. lot to say about slavery. <laughs> so absolutely. Would you want to start us off? Yeah. Tell us some of the Bible passages that people reference on whatever side of the equation they fall on slavery uh i laugh because i feel like this is not such a um what's the word a, a controversial topic anymore <laughs> at least over here um but you know it wasn't so long ago that it was quite a controversial well, it was topic. controversial and they're honestly like there are pockets of some people who claim to be christians they still believe this um people mm -hmm. i've met tangentially but it's not it's not as dead as we would have hoped actually hmm. yeah they're actually as you said before there are a lot of verses about slavery especially in regulating slavery in the old testament and of course there are some in the new testament as well so i just tried to pull a few representative examples of how slavery is talked about in the bible and when i was doing this research one that i kept coming across is genesis 9 25 through 27 and this was one that um, a lot of people who were fighting for the institution of slavery would cite as, oh, this is God-ordained slavery. Mm. And um, it says, and he, Noah, said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, mm. and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So it's kind of saying well, okay, if you're a Canaanite, God has said you're going to be a servant of servants for forever, basically, mm -hmm. is the idea. And so, therefore, it's okay to, slavery is okay. 
So that's one that I saw a lot. I also pulled some verses just showing the different regulations about slavery in the Old Testament. So there's uh, Exodus 12:44 that talks about how an, an uncircumcised slave cannot eat the Passover. And um, the actual quote is, But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. And then there's another regulation regarding rules for buying Hebrew and non-Hebrew slaves. And this comes from uh, Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. And it says, Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. All right, and I'll start off our New Testament example with one. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 22. It says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Mm. And you had some other New Testament ones too. Correct? Yes, yes. So I'm going to go to Colossians 3:22, which says, "Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God." And I have one more that comes from 1 Timothy 6:1 through 5, and it says, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, he is proud, knowing nothing. From such withdraw thyself. So, that that that'll be interesting as we further discuss how these verses kind of play out and what maybe they actually mean the thought that's come to mind to me multiple times while doing research Mm -hmm. this week is we're in a military community so sometimes Mm -hmm. we hear the phrase you know the military owns me or the the military owns us (laughs) right and it's of course you know not true but on another hand it's like well there are certain decisions we truly cannot make now that we're in this situation it's a little bit true yeah Right. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of makes me wonder every time I I, I've cringed multiple times hearing these verses. Mm -hmm. Right. Because of that word slave. And Mm -hmm. I think it's you know, I think that this episode will be nice to unpack a little bit what is meant by slave and how it is slightly different for sure from what some of us think of now i don't know if that makes it excusable necessarily i will let me put all my cards on the table here because i came to this discussion thinking i was pretty upset i was like people always like to say these are indentured servants and stuff and it's clearly not what's happening you know clearly Mm -hmm. but and then i'm like oh jenny's presenting a very good side (laughs) for that (laughs) um (laughs) which will be interesting um there are some i still think there are some significant concerns which we'll get into but Mm -hmm. before we do that we wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about Philemon mm-hmm. 1, 8 through 17, because I think it highlights sort of the military idea of being owned, but also mm-hmm. agreeing to it. This particular letter is really an interesting case in the New Testament, because yeah. in this particular letter, Paul has taken in a runaway slave 
and is writing back to the slave's master and saying, hey, I would like this slave to, to remain with me and to remain free. But there's some really interesting things about it um, that, you know, will make people on either side of the of the table of the discussion kind of frustrated. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's just very it, it's good to look into kind of the early church mentality on slavery, especially as we're going to unpack some of the Old Testament thought, because you definitely see a progression, I think. And by progression, I mean, you know, there's this new introduced element of equality in Christ that is repeatedly in the New Testament. Yes. And yet there's not this quick action to, you know, abolish all forms of slavery. So Mm -hmm. it's just these two components that kind of exist that I think we'll see here. So I'm going to read in Philemon 1, 8 through 17. Paul says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So he's speaking to... Philemon, who is the master of the slave. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, Mm -hmm. but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do wish, bro- <laughs> I do I like wish brother. <laughs> right. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident mm-hmm. of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've read this, yeah. but I guess I haven't read it out loud, and I've. <laughs> it's kind of comical to think about this. But, anyways, a side note. In 1 Timothy 1.10, um, we read about a practice the Romans had that was nearly as barbaric as American slavery, because I think a lot of our listeners will be comparing this idea mm-hmm. of slavery with the idea of slavery in America. Um, so in right. the Roman time, it was referenced as man-stealing. And so in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul tells Timothy that a person cannot simultaneously claim the name of Christ while participating in the involuntary ownership of human life so there's definitely even though slavery is not abolished under early church christian Mm -hmm. thought there's definitely an idea of what it means to treat people well or ethically within slavery which i know sounds like wait if someone's in slavery they can't be treated ethically but you know at the same time if you think kind of of the military example i gave are we using slavery correctly that term i don't know exactly um we're gonna get into it (laughs) yeah but as far as philemon there's an article called paul condemns american slavery by jesse johnson where he writes about what might be happening in this passage and what it means Mm -hmm. especially concerning american slavery he writes here's the truth while the message of philemon is more profound than simply slavery is bad the book does present some uncomfortable truths for both sides of today's social justice debate philemon was a church leader in Colosse. he owned slaves one of whom ran away apparently after stealing something 
from Philemon. Somehow, this slave, Onesimus, met Paul in Rome and was converted and eventually became valuable to Paul as a ministry partner. Paul then found himself in a bind. Should he send Onesimus back to Philemon and risk losing one of his ministry partners, or should he keep him and risk offending Philemon should he ever find out? Mm -hmm. Also, if he, Paul, writes Philemon, should he claim apostolic authority and demand (laughs) that for the sake of the gospel Onesimus be released? Or should Paul command his manumission on the grounds that slavery is inherently dehumanizing, even in its more accepted Roman forms? Mm The book of Philemon is Paul's answer to these questions. In less than 350 words, Paul persuades Philemon to release Onesimus and have him return to Rome. Church history records that the request was granted, and Onesimus eventually became the bishop of Colossae. This letter and Paul's handling of the situation in general offers insight into how Paul viewed the institution of slavery. It should be noted that Paul found himself in an ethical quandary of biblical proportions. By Roman law, a person could not employ or aid a runaway slave. But by Levitical law, a Jew cannot send a runaway slave back to his master. That's found in Deuteronomy 23.15. So this is actually a sneaky argument for dispensationalism because if Paul had considered himself still under Levitical law, he would not have violated it by sending Onesimus back. That's very, that's very interesting. Yeah. So Paul chooses not to claim apostolic authority in his letter. Rather, he appeals to Philemon out of love and friendship. The letter begins with a greeting followed by Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon. Onesimus is not mentioned until verse 10 after paul has already reminded philemon that he could command him to do just about anything and philemon mm-hmm. would have to accept but paul does not press that point he kind of does him, though right but like yeah it kind of feels like it but i suppose you know i but but i'm coming to the letter thinking of them as equals so right. perhaps if it's this idea of paul having this authority already over him mm-hmm. then it would have seemed more shocking that there's any choice at all i don't know yeah okay that makes sense at least spiritual authority right anyways the reader can almost feel philemon's suspense building as he reads a letter from the apostle wondering what exactly it is that paul wants then immediately after the request paul uses a pun based off of onesimus's name which means useful which we Mm. don't necessarily get from our our english reading Mm -hmm. formerly the slave was useless to philemon but now his he has become truly Mm -hmm. onesimus to paul and if released to philemon as well he would be useful to either of them paul intentionally structured the letter to lead philemon gradually to the main request which comes in verse 21 rather than bluntly saying it at the beginning he did this through humor and by carefully choosing his words however Mm. it is interesting to note that paul's circumlocution if followed would begin the process of dismantling slavery within the church Generally speaking, Paul has no qualms about Christian masters owning Christian slaves. Yet, in this instance, the apostle is not concerned about anything generally. Rather, he has in view two Christian men and the desire to be reunited with his partner in the ministry, Onesimus. It seems impossible to ignore the implications of this request. It is worth remembering that Roman slavery was fundamentally different than slavery in the United States, even though, as we said before, there are some things about Roman slavery that was similar. Philemon did not kidnap Onesimus. It seems more likely that Onesimus had agreed to be a slave for a period of time, received payment for that period, and then fled. It is in this way Mm -hmm. that he robbed Philemon. However, notice that in even this form of slavery, mild by comparison to what happened in the Americas, Mm -hmm. Paul laid the foundation of equality in the church. 
It was the former slave mm-hmm. that would be his ministry partner, and Philemon would be serving the Lord by granting Onesimus his freedom and treating a former runaway slave as more than a brother. Philemon was a Christian man who owned slaves. However, this letter does not justify the institution of American slavery. It, in fact, does the opposite. The nature of Paul's request showed that over a period of time, even Roman slavery would be undone by those ministering and laboring for the gospel. But also notice this. Paul did not advocate for the ending of slavery empire-wide, nor anything approaching today's drive for so-called social justice. Instead, he did something more radical. He preached the gospel and allowed it to work in society by working in Philemon's heart. Some may disparagingly call this a truncated gospel, but it is the gospel of the New Testament. Mm. <laughs> so that last paragraph, I don't know. I have some yeah. I have some mixed feelings on a little bit. I know. yeah. But I what I liked about what you were reading in this article, I I liked that he does bring up that this is different than uh, slavery in the United States, and so it's likely that Onesimus so he probably like willingly gave himself to Philemon probably for a, a number of years and then during the time when he was supposed to be serving he ran away so it wasn't this whole it, it's actually a lot kind of similar to what you're saying about being in the military like you willingly sign away x number of years and then you get to choose if you want to remain in the military or like choose if you want to remain a slave in this context but you still don't have full freedom but it's not the same as like chattel slavery um but I see him pushing for equality and getting rid of this, you know, anything resembling slavery in that way. Uh, I also thought when you're reading it, if you're if you're thinking about like slavery in America, that just would not fly very well. Like that idea of freeing your slaves, because not only like in the Roman Empire, I think there were a lot of different people from all different backgrounds and races and cultures, and it was a bit more mixed. And I don't think there was this the same kind of racism that we associate with the slavery in the United States. So if you freed someone who was black back, especially like 1800s, it'd be very difficult to see them then treated like as a fellow worker in Christ or as a brother or all those sort of things. So those are just kind of thoughts I had as we're comparing and contrasting. Yeah. And one thought I had, and I don't know if it's because (laughs) of political correctedness you know, in our mm-hmm. day and time. But I was actually a little offended with how he used the name Onesimus because I thought, oh, are you just trading the use of this man for the ah. for his use to another man? However, he mentions him as a brother. You know, he mentions him um, in ways that seem equal. But, you know, when we say, oh, someone's a tool even or, or you're using a person, yeah. there's this idea that's negative. But that not, did not necessarily exist back then. Um, but that is something that kind of came to mind to me. Yeah, that could be a translation thing that we're picking up on that maybe doesn't mean that. Yeah, but yeah. I just, I it occurred to me, I thought, It doesn't oh. sound good, right? It kind of grates. It doesn't sound good, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I want to just bring up again, we have to remember, Paul thought Jesus was coming back very soon. And I always bring this up when we talk about Paul. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge fan of Paul in many ways, but he thought Jesus was coming back. And so I have to admit, you know, if I thought Jesus was coming back in a few years, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, of crises or, or uh, social justice things. I would say, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, if we have 2,000 more years, we, we need to be addressing that. But if we only have two years, right. we've got to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. So I think in, in that sense, you know, I give him a little grace i suppose um and i actually you know as i was reading over your notes earlier i was kind of thinking ah well that kind of closes it i guess i was i guess i was wrong slavery isn't as bad as i thought in in the bible (laughs) but 
let me say, I I want to bring up briefly mm-hmm. about sex and slavery. Now we had discussed doing a whole episode on you know uh, sex trafficking in yeah. the Bible, which would be fascinating, yep. and maybe you know in the future maybe we, we can because there's definitely enough content there for sure. You know, concubines, especially in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you know, David had one. What about David and Bathsheba? What's going on there? You know, mm-hmm. I had been taught, oh, well, she should have had discretion, you know, kind of the thing. Like, like, well, she shouldn't I... have been bathing naked. No. Yeah. See, that's a whole thing. Yeah. There's so much there. It's a thing, right? Anyways, and then thing with Esther, you know, you're, you're not reading right? explicitly that she's being probably forced to have sex with the king. From what I've heard, I, mean, I haven't done a lot of research into that, but that's how it was I've always certainly, it, but you're right. It, it's just, it's anyway, there's a lot, but when it comes to slavery and sex, I think it's interesting. At least we know like with Abraham, it was customary that if your if your wife couldn't have a child, you would try to bear it by the handmaiden. Mm-hmm. And so is that, uh, you know, I, I, I imagine at first I thought, well, no servant's going to be jumping for joy that they have to be used. But then I was like, well, it certainly could elevate your position. So there could be some stuff going in there. But nevertheless, nevertheless, whatever the opinion was, the slave didn't get a say. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so that is problematic. And I wanted to bring up. Um, briefly a passage about sex and slavery from mm-hmm. Leviticus 19 20 through 22 and it says if a man has sexual relations with a woman who is a slave designated for another man but not ransomed or given her freedom an inquiry shall be held they shall not be put to death since she has not been freed and so mm-hmm. this is to be compared with Leviticus 2010 which says if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death this I think is an interesting commentary on how sexual infractions to the law are perceived within the context of slavery. So the Deuteronomic law says that when a woman is a free citizen and the man who attacked her did so against her will, the woman would not be found liable, but the man who raped her would be put to death. Mm-hmm. However, according to Leviticus 19.20, the woman had not been set free by her master in the verse that I just read. Mm-hmm. So... The woman was intended to marry a husband. Thus, for all practical purposes, she has been given in marriage, but the marriage has not been legally consummated because she had not been given her freedom yet. So if the sexual intercourse had taken place after the woman had been set free, then she would be considered the betrothed wife of a man. As a result, both her and the man who had sex with her would be stoned to death. If the woman were a slave in the house of her master without being given in marriage to another man, she would be considered the property of her master. And in this case of sex, the offender would have to pay a compensation to her master. The betrothal of the woman presupposes that her master had already received the bridal price from the prospective husband. The sex act between the man and the woman means that now the master would have to return the bridal price to the intended husband since the woman, because of her situation as a violated woman, would not be accepted for marriage. So I think that this shows not only an interesting intersection of sex and slavery, but just the idea of women as well, mm-hmm. and definitely a very a, a property idea. And it's problematic to me because even if slavery, you know, even if we can say it's not exactly slavery as we think of it, right. I think that this dark component is still so very problematic you know Mm -hmm. and and i've seen and i have argued this position myself that the bible might have a 
redemptive movement trajectory, mm-hmm. which I do think in this case is actually, you can really make that argument. You know, you start in the place a civilization is, is in and God is actively trying to work to push people forward to the more loving ethical society, but doesn't all happen at once. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something that I've argued before. I could definitely see it for here. Um, but nevertheless, there is kind of this dark side sexually. Definitely sexually about, you know, women being more property and also just showing how if talking about women in the context of being slaves, they don't have freedom. And that's very clear. They couldn't consent. Yeah. That, that's very clear in there. So, so I want to be as accurate as I can be, but not whitewash the idea that slavery in the Bible was so much different than what we see in slavery in the United States, mm. which it is, but there is still this lack of freedom, this lack of agency that we need to also definitely acknowledge. Yeah. Yes. And, and right before I actually came on here, I was talking to someone and, and they had mentioned Exodus 21, seven, um, which kind of is this whole, along the same line of thought. Um, it says if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master mm. who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So anyways, I actually i am reading on from what they had brought up. And it, it is interesting. There's this interesting intersection of equality because of um of being an israelite Mm -hmm. and and marriage making you uh, of a of a higher status of a more free status and yet without those things you know there's definitely a property status however there's also a limited time duration to Mm -hmm. this often in the old testament among um israelites you know it wasn't meant to be a permanent thing that's what also like i said reminds me of the military so it's Mm -hmm. just a fascinating intersection of ideas it's kind of like dizzying (laughs) yeah but anyways i wanted to get into how slavery has been talked about in the united states Mm -hmm. because i think this is something a lot of people (laughs) i hear often christians say of course god's against slavery of course mm-hmm. it is wrong to ever own a person and it wasn't mm-hmm. so long ago people were on the complete opposite side of that coin which of course leads us to ask well then what are we doing that about today are we still doing that about some things you know that's yeah. something we need to ask that's, ourselves that's the fear um, i have for sure yeah and it's hard it's hard to tell mm-hmm. but i think it involves using more than just an ancient text i think that we use that ancient text as a starting point if we're a christian of course this is me Mm -hmm. you know my stance but we have to use our minds and our moral compasses or we can get Mm -hmm. in some weird (laughs) places with our thoughts i'm going to read from silent object to vocal subject an analysis of the historiography of american slavery um and this is a a really interesting article that covers how people talked about slavery um around the civil war so When contemporary antebellum historians wrote about slavery, all of them had one reference in common, the Bible. Leviticus 25.44 underlies an essential pro-slavery argument. It reads, both they, bondmen, and they, bondmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. 
Reverend Fred A. Ross, a Presbyterian minister from Alabama, used this passage in his 1857 Slavery Ordained of God, which I talked about in our Bible game. I'm going to read that quote again. He said, Sir, I do not see how God could tell us more plainly that he did command his people to buy slaves from the heathen round about them and from the stranger and of their families sojourning among them. The passage has no other meaning. Did God merely permit sin? Did he merely tolerate a dreadful evil? God does not say so anywhere. He gives his people law to buy and hold slaves of the heathen forever on certain conditions and to buy and hold Hebrew slaves in variously modified particulars. For Ross, non-Christian African men and women fit the requirements of Leviticus 25:44 perfectly. Which is, you know, it's, it's reading it, especially reading it like the way I just did, I can see how that sounds so convincing, right? It does. If you are taking the Bible, especially upon an on-the-face reading, right, without maybe even understanding the dynamics that were necessarily going on in Leviticus. So, yeah, I'm thinking kind of like the, the Bible verse he was saying where it even says like bonds men and bonds women, um, that doesn't connote to the same, it doesn't have the same connotation to you know african slaves that doesn't that doesn't mean the same thing but mm, he yeah. probably honestly didn't know that because we think now oh i'll just i'll google that or i'll try to figure this out but if i didn't know hebrew or greek you just have the translation yeah, that you yeah. have not trying to defend him at all i'm just picking up on that one mm. little point that's actually a point i would love to talk about at some point mm. um the sense of when we talk about there being racism and sexism and uh, superiority complexes of different types you know, it's, mm-hmm. it is talked about negatively and it should be. However, sometimes I, I wonder how much of this stems from ignorance, um, how much of this stems from, um, like you said, not having the resources that some of us, that we have today. I think that we are, should be held to a higher yeah. level of scrutiny in some ways today, but it's something that's just very fascinating to me to think about um, as far as people, like you said, when people did defend this, I don't know that it mm-hmm. was always coming from a malicious place, although I do think it was wrong. Any form of slavery I wholeheartedly believe is wrong and should be abolished all over the world. But I don't think that all people who were pro-slavery did it out of malicious intent. Still wrong, still very mm. demeaning, all those things. But I don't want to just paint them all as monsters. You know, what I'm So the common white person who did or didn't own slaves, they could have heard this, yes, believed yes, this, yes. and gone on about their day without a second thought, believing that this made perfect sense and they didn't have the resources we had like there's i still think you know there's something and lots of abolitionists like it's just it was very apparent to them um but just for the lay person i do want to i do want to extend some grace and understanding as we're going through this yeah especially if you were hearing some of these voices that i found in this article because the messaging is kind of crazy In his 1841 essay entitled The Scriptural View of Slavery, Thornton Stringfellow works his way through both the Old and New Testaments, identifying passages sanctioning slavery. He identifies its legitimate existence in the stories of Canaan and Shem, Abraham, Moses, and Christ himself. By pointing out that God has provided for slavery in biblical times, he argues that northern abolitionists have taken it upon themselves to judge the will of God, something truly unacceptable Mm. to a good American Christian. So interesting. Mm -hmm. The biblical argument, however, was not the only one slavery's defenders made. In 1837, John C. Calhoun, then U.S. Senator from South Carolina, gave a speech called The Positive Good of Slavery. 
Calhoun argues not only that slavery is a stabilizing force in society and an improvement on the life slaves had in Africa, but also that the existing relation between the two races in the South against which these blind fanatics are waging war forms the most solid and durable foundation on which to rear free and stable political institutions. I should have noted that I was reading a quote partially through that. Yeah, yeah. Or like, wow, like, Liz. Wow, wow. Way to up, yeah, your, way, like... way to up your language. <laughs> um, in his mind, the political discord that accompanied the conflict between labor and capital did not exist in the agrarian South. This provided a more stable ground on which to develop good government. So Calhoun's argument about the detrimental nature of northern capitalism was a popular one. George Fitzhugh's own treatment of the idea, Cannibals All, was published in 1857. What an interesting title, I know. huh? Cannibals All. America, the United States, has always been such like a pro-capitalist society that I was surprised that actually maybe it isn't. Like Especially in the South, maybe it wasn't. I just didn't know that. That's It's just a very interesting point. It is, yes. Um, he, George Fitzhugh, argued not only that the slaves had a higher quality of life than oppressed groups in Europe, but also that northern capitalism produced a type of moral cannibalism by transforming supposedly free men into virtual slaves working for their employer's benefit. And northern worker faced the same economic exploitation that a slave did without any paternalistic protection. I actually think it's mm. very interesting. That's very interesting. It's also so false, right? Because now we have mm. we have a very clear historical record of the horrors of slavery, both you know, mentally, physically, being whipped, tortured. And I've heard this argument too, like, well, in other parts of the world, it's X Y Z is worse. It's like, well, that doesn't. You're like mm. trying to like make it like say, well, it's okay because it's better than whatever. Like that doesn't mean that yeah. it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean that it's okay. And also, slaves were not treated well in the United States. Not at all. Yeah. And now we, you can't, you can, you could hide it more, I think, then, in a sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. But. You didn't have news media coverage on things happening to people that are not seen as your equal. You know? Right. You and didn't have coverage on that. Yeah, they clearly did not see people who look differently than, you know, the Anglo-Saxon white. They not typically seen as equal but you know inferior in a lot of different ways which you know now we think that's i do think totally it's ridiculous. interesting though that he points out this idea that a northern worker who is free is facing the same economic exploitation without the protection supposedly that slaves had like as you said that's not necessarily true but i think that's a really interesting thought because it's like the answer then is we need to keep slaves then. The answer isn't, well, then we need to find a system that better treats everyone. Right, right. It's interesting. Because, I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, around the Industrial Revolution and all these things happening and um, uh, factories and the working conditions and children working, like, that was terrible also. Also very terrible. Um, and also something that people came in and, and called out and, you know, worked to, to better. But, yeah, it's interesting that his idea is, oh, so slavery is actually the solution to this. Because we treat our slaves yeah. so well. <laughs> exactly. Like, mm. uh, yeah, okay. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> so in his mind, right, to the Southern planter, yeah. it was paternalism, parenting in an idea. Is right. that what that means? Paternalism, so fathering, ins- yeah. sort of? Isn't that so insulting, though? Like, these are my, no. <laughs> you know, inept children that I have to care for. Like, how insulting and just degrading. Dehum- well, dehumanizing, of course. Yeah. It, it's exactly what it is. But okay, please continue. Yeah. 
<laughs> to the southern planter it was paternalism that mm-hmm. set slavery above free labor this concept defined the way that masters treated their slaves and what they felt they were owed in return so good masters would recognize and treat their slaves as human beings govern their slaves as they would their own family with a balance of firmness and kindness and make concerted efforts to teach his slaves christianity if the master adhered to these guidelines then the slave would supposedly naturally naturally respond to his recognition fairness discipline and instruction with loyalty and obedience so by treating the slave well by caring for him the master made slavery humane in this mindset he gave it an edge over free labor by investing personal energy in the slave that the capitalist would never invest in the free worker um yeah, it's so interesting because there's part of me that thinks again of the employee situation. But we have to remember it, there are some very distinct differences between this and just being an employee. Oh, yeah. And this was, I think, kind of how Christians would justify it in their mind, right? Right. Um, they say, well, yeah, we're, you know, and so that's important to keep in mind, I think, as we can continue on thinking about all this. Right. But on the other end of the spectrum, anti-slavery leaders made their arguments largely on abstract moral lines. Now, this is only one article, so I'm kind of interested. I wish I would have looked a little more to see yeah, if this is really true or if there of, were... I was going to say, I wouldn't say abstract. I think that there was more... Some other abolitionists definitely had more concrete yes, thoughts. Yes, and would maybe use more specific verses, you know, uh, and, and more specific right. Christian lines of reasoning. But mm-hmm. of these ones, I can kind of see what he's talking about. One of these particular voices, the anti-slavery voice, was John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. In his Thoughts Upon Slavery, which was published in 1794, he asks whether treating slaves as slaves can even be defended, even on the principle of heathen honesty, or whether they can be reconciled, if you're saying the Bible out of the question, with any degree of either justice or mercy. Mm -hmm. So... With the Bible clearly providing for slavery, Wesley understood that, um, but he and his colleagues sidestepped the scriptural argument and appealed directly to the basic moral conflict of good versus evil. Nevertheless, Wesley still appeals to God for the justice he craves. His final paragraphs appeal to God as the ultimate representation of moral good, regardless of what the scripture allows. This combination of secular morality and religious appeal would be repeated by later abolitionists. So this particular article may have a slight um, bias against um, the Bible. I don't know. Um, But because reading that, I think there have been other people who have made a case against slavery directly from the Bible. Absolutely. Um, Or at least like the the slavery we've talked about Mm -hmm. in America. Um, But it is interesting to see that in some places, people are kind of uh, appealing, like Wesley, just to the idea like, don't you know? Don't you just know this is wrong? Can't you just tell? So in 1854, William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist orator and editor of the anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, gave a speech now referred to as no compromise with the evil of slavery, in which he used the same sort of moral and religious argument. Garrison's plea for justice turns first to the Declaration of Independence. He takes the guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, literally arguing that to fail to extend these rights to the slave is the betrayal of the document and a moral failing. He then turns to justifying abolition in the eyes of God. He quotes scripture, but never a full passage, preferring to expound upon God's justice and mercy. According to Garrison, as white men recognize that black slaves have souls that can be saved by Christ, they owe them the same consideration under man's laws as they receive under God's. So it's interesting to see how the other side argued this, the uh, abolitionist side. And I actually think one of the most interesting 
voices I found was actually uh, President Lincoln. So this was in probably written in October of 1858 during the height of the Lincoln and Douglas debates. And it's a scathing indictment of those who claim that since slavery was present in the Bible, that it must have been met with God's approval. So Lincoln begins by questioning that if blacks were truly inferior to whites, then as good Christians, shouldn't whites provide more to those in need instead of taking what little they had? This is such an interesting way of taking this. So he, yeah. he summed up this idea by writing, give to him that is needy is the Christian rule of charity, but take from him that is needy is the rule of slavery. Mm. Lincoln concluded that the rule of slavery was indeed take from him that is needy. He then turned his attention to those who claimed that it was the will of God that African Americans were enslaved. Lincoln admits that there is no contending against the will of God, but concludes that God himself gives no audible answer on the subject and that the Bible gives none or at most none, but such as admits of a squabble as to its meaning. Uh So this would mean that it was... This would mean then that it was up to man, more specifically the slave owner, to determine what precisely was the will of God regarding the plight of the slave. Mentioning specifically Reverend Frederick Ross, who the previous year had published a book entitled Slavery Ordained of God, as we've mentioned earlier, Lincoln poses a simple question. If the slave owner is the one interpreting God's will, would Reverend Ross voluntarily choose to surrender his slave and thereby be forced to work for his own bread? Or retain his slave and continue to enjoy the benefits the slave provided. So Lincoln summed up the total issue in this way. As a good thing, slavery is strikingly peculiar in this. That is, it is the only good thing which no man ever seeks the good of for himself. I love that. In this simple document, Lincoln points out the hypocrisy of using the Bible to justify slavery on others. Throughout his life, Lincoln abhorred the South's peculiar institution and those who defended it, including, in this case, those who attempted to invoke God as a justification for it. Honestly, you know what this sounds like to me? It's it's different, but it sounds like the homosexuality discussion to me slightly because there have been arguments made about the differences in what was happening in the cases in the bible concerning homosexuality especially like we mentioned earlier in Sodom and gomorrah Mm -hmm. where there's this this violent aspect of rape involved as well but it it is slightly different i would say i'm not going to compare those two things but i do think the way that christians handle the arguments is somewhat similar and how we go about trying to think through it you know right on either side so it's just it's interesting to note that yes for sure So, Jenny, you had found some things concerning different kinds of slavery. Would you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I kind of found some comparing, contrasting things talking about um, what slavery meant in the Bible and what what most of us Americans think of as slavery. Just to give us more context as we think through these things, as we read the Bible and we read these verses, what maybe is the actual meaning. So... Mm. I'm going to start out by saying that uh, what most Americans think of and most people in the world nowadays would probably think of as slavery is the chattel slavery. And that involves forcing people into service indefinitely, unwavering cruelty, and the reduction of people to mere property. And so this is what's common in the African-American slave trade. It's not what is described in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, slavery commonly refers to a process of indentured servitude that the poor and destitute or those with enormous debts, they would make use of temporarily. They could, quote, 
sell themselves as servants or slaves, depending on translation, to pay off debt or to obtain sustenance for themselves and their families in a time and place with no government welfare programs. So I, I don't think this is not desirable necessarily. Um, and this also makes you think back to the Industrial Revolution and poor working conditions, etc. But it is different than a lifetime of slavery. Though I imagine it's people who didn't who were just doing it so they could eat that may be there that could have been a lifetime but it wasn't yeah. necessarily yeah. law um mm. so sometimes slavery in the bible also refers to penal servitude in which wrongdoers are punished with forced labor um even today uh this kind of happens in prisons or when people are, are sentenced to community service or that sort of thing and that's actually a whole other can of worms but it doesn't yeah. have the same yeah uh there are issues with that uh there's history of that in the united states as well but it doesn't necessarily mean like you know you're a slave forever or you don't get out of it or anything like that mm -hmm. uh just briefly um i have this list of six points that just show again kind of comparing and contrasting how old testament slavery is different than chattel slavery uh, one is a, it was a capital crime to kidnap a person and sell him into slavery. And the reference for that is Exodus twenty one sixteen. Two, it was a capital crime to own a person who had been kidnapped for slavery. Exodus twenty one sixteen b Female slaves were protected from abuse and sexual assault. Deuteronomy 21, 10-14, that kind of talks to what you were mentioning before, where they weren't, they weren't killed if they were raped. I wouldn't yeah. know that I would say they protected yeah. so much, but in a sense. There were maybe so, some limited protections, I think There were some limited protections. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. But not uh, maybe four. what right. fully would be, what we would fully consider ethical. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, that's good. That's that's good. Four, an injured or abused slave was to be released. Exodus 21, 26, 27. Runaway slaves were to be protected and given freedom. Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. And that's what we also talked about with Paul's letter to, to, yeah. um, uh, Philemon. To Philemon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. And, um, the sixth point I have here is that the maximum duration of slavery for indebtedness was six years. And even quote unquote, lifelong slaves were to be released every 50 years. Now I think that these mm. six, these six, uh, points were in regard to Hebrew slaves, not necessarily slaves who weren't Hebrew. But as we already kind of talked about, there were other protections and provisions for them as well. And it didn't, it still didn't mean chattel slavery in the same way. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to, there's a quote from, uh, again, Jesse Johnson, who's a who you referenced above, and he's a teaching pastor at Emmanuel Bible Church. Uh, he says that, yes, the Old Testament does regulate slavery, but it does not provide any cover for the Southern slave culture. Levitical laws concerning slavery are simply incompatible with slavery as it existed in the United States, and those who attempt to justify American slavery by appealing to the Torah are either profoundly ignorant or intentionally dishonest. And so I liked... So interesting. I, I agree with that interpretation. Um, I thought that was a good kind of quote to uh, summarize and just to back it up kind of in conclusion. Um, 
when slavery deviated from the instructions that are that are that I just laid out, it was condemned by God. And so there's a few cases in the Bible or in the, in the Old Testament that kind of approaches American slavery, and the Bible calls it evil. Like when Joseph was sold, um, he was stolen from his family, mm. sold into slavery in Egypt. Uh, God calls that an evil act. And there's a Jeremiah 526, and this is where God calls this kind of slavery wicked. Um, and then again, like in the New Testament, uh, in First Timothy, that verse that you talked about, where uh, if you're like the, that quote, like man stealers, like that's evil and incompatible with uh, a Christian ethic. So those are just a few verses that I think if any, if you know, you just need to think through it, or if you ever come across someone who is having trouble with that, you can, you can kind of go back to that. Yeah. 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 And there were a couple of hermeneutical things you found too. When we look at the original words mm-hmm. used that get translated slavery, uh, what, what did you find on that? Yeah. So I found this very, very interesting and I think will be very helpful as, as we step away from this conversation. And it's talking about the difference in the word, the words doulos and ebed. And this is a, pretty short article it's from the preface of the esv study bible and i'm just going to read through it because i found it really insightful and so it starts a particular difficulty is presented when words in biblical hebrew and greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world such is the case in the translation of ebed which is hebrew and doulos greek terms which are often rendered slave These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that requires a range of renderings, slave, bond, servant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words ebed and doulos has been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily, e.g. to escape poverty or to pay off debt, or involuntarily, e.g. by birth, being captured in battle, or by judicial sentence. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic Law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. In New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant, that is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve as master for seven years, except for those in Caesar's household in Rome who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master, and officially declared a free man. The ESV usage thus seeks to express the most fitting nuance of meaning in each context. Where absolute ownership by a master is envisaged, as in Romans 6, slave is used. Where a more limited form of servitude is in view, bondservant is used. Where the context indicates a wide range of freedom, servant is preferred. Um, And this is footnotes in the ESV originally provided to identify the Hebrew or Greek and the range of meaning that these terms may carry. I feel like my head's kind of spinning a little bit, to be honest, because yes. there's a part of me that I think has to acknowledge it wasn't exactly what I thought it was in the Bible at all times, um, but what to do with the fact that things that were still unethical existed mm-hmm. at times, especially, like I said, concerning the sexual aspect 
um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I'm gonna have to sit with it a while. Uh-huh. Do you have any Do you have any thoughts from from looking at all of this combined research? I was a little bit afraid. Like, what am I gonna find when I start digging in? Um, and I think that I have found that I can definitely reconcile the Bible with being very anti-slavery, even you know when it does talk about it, even when it talks about things that I still don't think are morally correct are or are a perfect system is sometimes the bible is just describing how things are it's not necessarily prescriptive uh i also found because i also heard like some people saying like well the people like these new bible translations are taking out the word slave to make it seem more politically correct or all these sort of things and as we kind of read by how the esv translators decided to translate these words like there are reasons why these changes were made and I think they're better. And so just knowing that I have access to research that helps me figure out what word is being used, what's actually being said, um, just kind of knowing that it's important to go back to figure out as much as we can to figure out what was, what was actually being said by a certain word, understanding why certain translation decisions were made to help us fully engage in this conversation as in all conversations about the bible i think that's very important i'm glad you brought that point up actually because i think that's something i've heard a lot a lot of times if there's a push for like you said a less harsh translation or understanding of a certain thing the the kind of go-to is well you're Mm -hmm. trying to twist scripture or you're trying to soften and in this case i think it's fairly obvious no the intent is to actually understand the original meaning and the original meaning was different than many of us have thought. Yes. And so for me, as someone coming in thinking of the chattel slavery thing, mm-hmm. you know, I, that is that is good to realize. And also there are those who thought of the chattel slavery mm-hmm. and said, okay, well, then it must be fine. So it's it's really important that we look at what was actually going on. Right. I just think, you know, this, this episode and this season has just really emphasized to me that when it comes to the Bible, we cannot just be reading it devotionally it is not responsible to just read this devotionally now i still to a degree do that however it's much more research-based and i know that seems cold and stifling Mm -hmm. to a lot of people um and that might be because i'm you know still in my own deconstruction uh, part of life (laughs) but this idea that what we do mm-hmm. with this text, if we believe it is true and has a say over how we live our lives, is going to impact other lives. And so we have to do some of the dive, mm-hmm. the deep diving, the hard work to look at some of these things, take a second look at them, you know. And I think for a lot of us, we thought, you know, slavery, oh, case closed. Cle- clearly, that's terrible. The, the Bible, of course, uh, assumes that position. Right. And it's like not so long ago, less than a century ago. People were arguing fairly convincingly that the Bible was pro-slavery, mm-hmm. and we need to pro-chattel slavery, and we need to we need to acknowledge that yes. and uh, step forward with that in mind. I think so. Anyway, Jenny, I've so enjoyed yes. doing this episode and this season with you. It has been so much fun and so just thought-provoking. It's been thought-provoking. It's It's been great to have those kind of more connection points with you as we're like, okay, we gotta record. We gotta get this done. Yeah. I've loved talking to you. It's It's been a true joy. Yes, I feel the same and we hope to have a bonus episode, a Q&A coming up. So everyone, uh, check it out. 
If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.